this promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him at peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews once again, Hebrews chapter 11. You are not imagining things if you are straining to hear the speakers. The speakers are not working today. So I will speak louder. And I will be my own amplifier. And I will encourage you to move to the front row if you would like. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11. We've covered Abel and we've covered Enoch. And then we spent last week in verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he becomes a rewarder of those who seek him. You want to change that second is to becomes. That he eternally is the great I am. And we stand in the presence of the great I am when we come to him in prayer. This coming to him is not getting saved. This chapter is not about getting saved. This chapter is about saved ones walking by faith. And so these saved ones walking by faith are illustrated repeatedly throughout the chapter. We've seen Enoch, we've seen Abel, this morning we'll see Noah. We'll work our way through the chapter and see the remainder of these. It's not about getting saved. It's about those that are already saved walking by faith. And that's what we are called to do. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Remember, our walk is please is supposed to be pleasing God. If it's not pleasing God, then it's not worthy not worthy of our Savior and His walk, not worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And so we're going to see this illustrated again and again. He who comes to God, the the worshiper who comes to God, I'm going to produce my own translation, my own doctrinal theological translation of this verse. And uh, then I'm going to copyright it and I'm going to start demanding royalties if I catch other people using it. But the the benefit, no, I'm not going to do that. It's it's all grace. The... uh, The understanding here, coming to God, you must presently walk by faith, believing the I am. Believing in the I am. And as you're believing in the I am, the I am becomes our rewarder. He becomes our payback rewarder. And it is such a powerful truth that our our actions trigger something with God. That when we come before Him, we stand before Him, and the eternal I Am becomes the rewarder, the payback rewarder that He becomes. And so this is what we looked at a week ago, and I would encourage you, if uh, if you missed it, or even if you were here, it's something you've got to listen to four or five times to let it soak in. Because he is the eternal, unchanging I am. The fact is, we have two different words for is, and they're profound. And they just show up here as is and is, and that's sad. Okay? He, uh, the one who comes to God must believe that he is. That is so <laughs> sad. People that view that as denying atheism. You know, like what kind of an atheist is even going to approach God anyway? That's, that's nonsensical. It's more than just not being an atheist. 
If you think the verse says, he who comes to God can't be an atheist, that's a terrible understanding of, of what this verse is saying. You must presently have faith. You must presently exercise the faith of, in the I am. Presently exercising faith in the I am. And that he becomes. The second is, is genomai, to become. To become something you were not before. So before you approached him, before you entered within the veil, before you stood before that throne of grace, he was not the rewarder that he becomes the moment you're standing there. That moment you're standing there. And I tried, I I used the Popeye spinach thing last week and regretted it, but it seemed to work. People got the idea that, you know, when he ate the spinach, he became something he wasn't before. He became super strong and, and so forth. So at least as on an illustration for a trigger, that kind of did it. But I'm sure there's a better illustration out there than that. When we stand before him, that's the trigger. That's when the I am becomes the rewarder. The rewarder of those who seek him. But we have to stand before him. And so it's a, it's a great goad. It's a great goad like chapter 4 when we approach the throne of grace to find mercy and obtain grace to help in time of need. It's a great goad that would urge us to stand in his presence constantly, constantly standing before him, becoming as opposed to eternally being. All right. Well then, side trip over. The, uh, the author of Hebrews inserts a number of these commentaries at various stages throughout the chapter. Uh, but so that's the commentary he inserted in verse 6 after the development of Enoch in verse 5. In verse 7, he moves on to Noah. And that's what we're going to cover today is Noah. I don't think we'll get to Abraham. Maybe we will. There's just so much with respect to Noah. And I also don't anticipate teaching a class for every single verse in this chapter. That would make 40 lessons in chapter 11. And we've been averaging about 10 per chapter. So we'll see if maybe things will speed up when we hit Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for today, we have Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now that's a long verse, and it says a lot of things. But that's a long verse that takes three chapters out of Genesis, and it takes additional developments on the part of the prophets, on the part of Ezekiel, on the part of Jesus. It takes an awful lot of Noah material and and plugs it into one verse, Hebrews 11.7. And one verse that uh, I believe, um, although... We can debate whether First and Second Peter came before Hebrews or after Hebrews, um, whether or not Peter had access to this or not, and whether or not the author of Hebrews had access to Peter or not. Nevertheless, we'll kind of let that go for this morning. This is the comprehensive study on Noah. And what do we learn from Noah? We've learned a lot of things already from Abel, that his faith led to his martyrdom, led to his death. We learned about Enoch, that his faith led to his not death, because <laughs> okay, he never died. He was raptured. He was pleasing to God, and he obtained that witness that he was pleasing before he was taken up, that he, in his pleasing walk with the Lord, the Lord raptured him. He was caught up. It's a preview of the rapture event you and I are looking forward to. So 
In the example number one, it led to his death. Example number two, it led to his rapture. Example number three leads to neither death nor rapture, but it leads to a grace preservation. A grace preservation through global judgment. And that there becomes significant because in these three very first examples that we have in Hebrews 11, we have typology that addresses our eschatology in the church. The recognition that we have either death or rapture that takes the bride out of here, and then what follows the rapture? Preservation of saints through global tribulation, correct. But you notice it's different saints. You notice Noah is not Enoch, all right? Noah is not, is not Abel. And so we use different saints to illustrate different saints. That in the typology of those saints, we have the fulfillment, the antitype of other saints, church age saints and tribulational saints. And they're different saints. Because everybody that gets raptured, guess what? They don't have to go through the tribulation. Enoch got raptured. He didn't get put on Noah's ark. And that's important because no church age believer priest that gets raptured is going to be preserved through the tribulation. The fact is we won't see the tribulation except a heavenly glimpse of it when we're looking down and watching our Lord's faithfulness and what he does. We will not be on earth to experience the tribulation. And so Noah being warned by God And I think this is a pattern we observe as well. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so faith is a response. Noah is going to apply faith. He's going to trust the faithfulness of what God is instructing him to do. Being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence he prepared an ark. And so we recognize the tandem here. And and the very definition we had back in verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Noah didn't see any rain yet, but he built the ark. And and you can imagine um, the whole principle of, of, uh, of, of building the ark when it is not yet raining. If you wait for it to start raining, it's too late. <laughs> you can't, it's, it's raining. You should be on the ark that you should have done built already. And the fact is, is that when we're walking by faith, we're walking in an eternal plan. The eternal plan of a father that doesn't function like we do. He's not winging it. He's not flying by the seat of his pants. He's not uh, trying to improvise and figure out something today. He's executing a plan that he put into, into place before the foundation of the world. And we have uh, the issues there. All right. So by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence. I love the tandem of faith and reverence. In reverence, in fear, fearing the Lord and not fearing man, not fearing the criticism from his neighbors and, uh, and all the joking about building a boat when there's no rain and no ocean. But in reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household You realize we can't prove biblically that his boys were believers. We can't prove biblically about Noah's wife, Mrs. Noah, or any of the wives of their sons. The only testimony we have is that Noah was a righteous man. Now I can kind of read between the lines and maybe infer that uh, Shem and Japheth had character and integrity, 
based on the actions with their drunk father there after the flood, is that reflective of a salvation status? Possibly. He's called the God of Shem when the covenant is issued after the flood. To me, that speaks to Shem's eternal life. And again, the blessings pronounced upon Shem and, uh, and Japheth, I think, point to uh, their inferences, if not statements of, of absolute certainty as to their salvation. Now, Ham, on the other hand, Ham may, may have just been the lucky little brother that <laughs> was blessed by association in having two older brothers that were saved. And the, having a dad that was saved, actually, that redeemed his entire household. And uh, other considerations that we can draw there. Also, we're going to make comment of the fact that was it the Lord that condemned the world or was it Noah that condemned the world? Because the testimony that's offered is that in building the ark, by which, that's the mechanism, the mechanism of ark building saved his family and at the same time condemned the world. The mechanism of ark building. And so we'll discuss that in the, uh, in the uh, plan of God as Noah's preaching righteousness, as he's preaching repentance, he's not building an ark with repentance in mind. <laughs> in other words, how many bedrooms, how many, uh, what do you call those in the Navy? Those are uh, bunks, berths. I was an Army guy, not a Navy guy, but and I'm also out of coffee. What did I do with my coffee? Could you please? You'll probably find it on top of the coffee maker. I think I set my cup there. When, uh, never mind. <laughs> All right. Man shall not preach by coffee alone, but, but I do. I do a lot. All right. I was talking about Noah. How many bedrooms did he, I mean, staterooms, bunks, berths, whatever. You know, he had compartments for all the animals. He had sleeping quarters for him and his wife and their kids. All right. Book by Wood, by, uh, Wood Morappi, by the way, marvelous text on all of the logistics of the ark, including the plumbing, including how they removed the animal waste and, uh, and how they provided food and water and all the other stuff. Thank you. Was it where I thought I left it? Oh, okay. It means I left it somewhere else. Life is good. All right. I'm going to get on Facebook now and complain about the terrible suffering we have in Christianity and all the suffering we, we go through. I had to preach 15 minutes without coffee. And <laughs> my pastor friends in, in uh, Cameroon are running for the jungles when they're getting shot at. And puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Now, he prepared the ark. He prepared the ark, including provision for animals two by two, clean animals by seven, because he was going to have a sacrifice when he was done. He saved seven clean animals to kill them after the flood. He brought them through the flood, and then he killed them after the flood as a worship sacrifice for the, for the preservation of the flood. And he prepared an ark with eight bunks for the eight human beings that were designated for survival. While for 120 years he preached repentance to a world that ignored him. 
to a world that rejected his warnings. Noah, having been warned, preached the warning and had zero response. That's another encouragement if, uh, if you're a preacher that thinks you're not seeing much of a response. <laughs> All right? Preach it anyway. And then build an ark for you and your family. That may be the only response you're getting in these things. Let's go back to Genesis 5 and take a look at it. Noah's testimony led to preservation through global judgment and entrance into inheritance. That's what verse 6 is dealing with here. Preservation from global judgment and entrance into inheritance. Not only did he condemn the world, but he also became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He becomes the sole forefather of the Christ. Because remember, we're all Adamic. We're also all Noahic. Because the whole line of descent has the Noah bottleneck right there. Everybody else but Noah and his three offspring were killed in the flood. So he becomes the heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He becomes the line of Christ progenitor in this uh, walk of faith. All right, so Genesis chapter 5, way back to Genesis. We did this for Abel, we did this for Enoch, and now Noah. You know, Abel we just had in chapter 4, Enoch we had in chapter 5, kind of hidden within all those begats that everybody ignores. Noah gets multiple chapters introduced in chapter 5 and then the narrative of chapter 6, 7, and 8, and 9. Starting in chapter 6, taking to the end of chapter 9 through 9.29. But starting in Genesis 5, 28 through 32, we have uh, the begats, all the days of uh, Methuselah. Methuselah lived 187 years, became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and had other sons and daughters who all died in the flood. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died in the year of the flood in the rabbis thought the very day of the flood because the, the Masoretic numbers line up that his 969th year was the year of the flood that he died that year, that his death was a sign. It may have very well been that day. We don't know. All right. Lamech lived 182 years, became the father of a son. And there was a Lamech in the line of Cain as well. It was a wicked Lamech that made an awful vow. This is a different Lamech. Lived 182 years, became father of a son. And he called his name Noah with a prophetic utterance saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And he issues a prophecy when Noah is born. Noah, of course, won't fulfill this prophecy for 600 years, long after Lamech's dead, in fact. But he will give us rest. In fact, the Hebrew word Noah means rest. All of these names, you can give a gospel message in these 10 generations from uh, all the way from Seth appointed and all the way down. All right. Then Lamech lived 595 years. Is that a clue? 595 years. The flood comes in Noah's 600th year of life. 
So 595 years is five years pre-flood. After he became the father of Noah and he had other sons and daughters, they all died in the flood. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They weren't triplets. We can uh, combine this with other passages in, in Chronicles and elsewhere. We can kind of gauge the sense that uh, of um, the youngest of which was two years old at the flood. But by 500, he had all three sons. And uh, this is what ends chapter 5 and prepares now for chapter 6. Now, skipping through the first seven verses, by the way, because if I start there, slow me down, but I would stay there for the rest of the hour. But that's the Nephilim portion of Genesis chapter 6. This is fallen angels perverting humanity. And uh, we're gonna, we'll, we'll detail it comprehensively in our new Genesis series coming up after Hebrews is complete. We will be moving on to Genesis. And there is so much angelology there in those first seven verses of chapter 6 that we'll have to work our way through it and, uh, and be strong on it because our generation is abandoning the angelic information left and right. They're abandoning angel, angelic conflict. They're abandoning rapture. They're abandoning dispensations. It's uh, frightening to me what's happening to uh, American evangelicalism. But picking up the Noah narrative in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, There's grace in the Old Testament, and here it is. An entire planet is going wicked. Every intent of the thoughts, when you you see the totality of it in verse 5, look at all the absolute expressions. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every that's one, intent of the thoughts of his heart was only, that's two, evil continually, that's three. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And that's around the world, that's global. And yet here's Noah who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. We have a righteous man in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So down to verse 8, there's the grace that's there. Verse 9, the Toledoth of Noah, the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. <laughs> I mean, hard enough being a remnant when there's a few. How about when there's zero? Nobody, zip, zero, nada, just you. And can we include your wife and your kids? Maybe. They're iffy at this point. There's you, righteous in the sight of God. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now what do you think all flesh is about? I think all means all. I think Noah and his family were the last remnant of pure, undefiled um, humanity. For 120 years, Noah has been preaching righteousness. And so uh, we see it. So God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Remember, when we read in Hebrews, Noah listened to the promise of God. He listened having been warned by God, 
By faith and reverence, he prepared the ark. And here's the warning that he's given. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So make for yourself an ark, gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms. See what I tell you? And shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Was that the royal cubit of 21 inches or the standard cubit of 18 inches? We don't know. We're assuming it's the 18-inch cubit. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark and the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So three primary cargo decks. And uh, the instructions he's given. Now I'm already lost. All right, I am totally, I'm, I'm still back in that early verse with what's an ark, right? And I don't know how to use tools. And so clearly God did not select me to be born in that day and age to Lamech. But the, um, the blessings of obedience include promise. Remember, he condemned the world, he saved his family, and he entered into promise. And so uh, in verse 17, it says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. So everything that breathes, and uh, we can probably exclude fish and so forth, but of the land-based animals, creepy, crawly things, creatures, cattle, birds, If it breathes, they were preserved in God's design. Every living thing, uh, and also your family, of course. Uh, Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Eight souls. Eight souls will escape the global judgment. We don't know the population. It likely was more than we have in the world today. Likely billions, billions. So we discussed how many babies can you have if your childbearing years are the best 600 years of your life? (laughs) All right. I suspect, that's right, population estimates are extraordinary. (laughs) Okay. Then every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. We're not 21st century American insanity yet. Male and female, he created them. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, every creeping thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. He didn't have to go find them. God ordered them to go to the ark and they obeyed. Animals always obey when God orders them to do something. So they came to Noah. Took the snails a while, but they got there. (laughs) As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. So provision was made. They're going to be on this thing for a year. Not just 40 days and 40 nights, but the waters kept rising and then they floated and then for a calendar year, they're on board. 
and so they have to be fed. So thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him to do. All right, now I'm not going to read the rest of this. You didn't come to church to have me read three chapters to you this morning, but read through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. You'll notice Noah doesn't close the door himself. God closes the door. So one of my favorite songs is actually incorrect on that point. God doesn't yell at Noah to hurry up and shut the door. God shuts the door. And then uh, not only is it rain from above, but it's floodgates of the deep. And uh, that is an important uh, study as well for the hydrology of where did all the water come from. And also in your reading, be very careful. You're going to notice the months and the days of the months and the year. And you're going to notice that this year was a year of 12 30-day months. And you're going to say, wow, why did they have 30-day months for 12 months for a year? Why did they have a goofy calendar like that back in the day? Because that's what they had back in the day. That's what the rotation of the earth originally was, was a 360-day year with 12 30-day months. So you'll notice that and you'll go, hmm, something I want to ask on a Wednesday night. All right, and then chapter 7 and chapter 8, and then they get off the ark. They sacrifice the clean animals. By the way, this is a priesthood that understands clean and unclean, even though they don't have a Leviticus yet. This is a Genesis, this is a Gentile priesthood. It was a patriarchal priesthood with Noah as the high priest here of his family. Understanding clean versus unclean without Leviticus to, uh, to guide them in this regard. And so uh, the Lord smells the aroma in 821. The soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. He will destroy the heavens and earth, and he will destroy by fire, not by water, but he will not annihilate every living thing because at the destruction of this heavens and earth, there is a remnant of living saints, and that remnant of living saints will not be destroyed as uh, God will provide for them to cross into the new earth. All right, now, somehow I missed... I had in the back of my mind three things. I went, oh, there it is. Way back in chapter 6, I'm sorry, and verse 3, just highlight that for yourself as well and jot yourself a note. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Frequently that's thought of as a shortening of the lifespan. I think it's better to think of it as the probation period until the flood comes, that the date is announced that the timeline is set. That he begins to, uh, to warn them for 120 years. Remember Noah was, uh, f- was uh, 500 when his kids were born, 600 when the flood came. He was already a preacher when his kids were born. He was already a preacher of righteousness when his kids were born. See? And if you start preaching young enough, your kids don't remember a time that you weren't a preacher. In Noah's case, it was 500. And uh, his kids weren't old enough to remember a time that he wasn't a preacher because he was a preacher the whole time. And so we'll talk about that as well. All right. Noah. 
Noah was praised by the Lord as being among the three greatest Old Testament intercessors. The three greatest Old Testament intercessors. And so now, on our way back to Hebrews, we're going to stop in Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, join me there. Now this gets mislabeled a lot. Sometimes uh, the three greatest Old Testament heroes, the, same, the greatest Old Testament believers, like Jesus when he said John the Baptist was the greatest of those born among women. But really, this is not a statement of greatness, per se. When the Lord is praising Noah, along with Daniel and Job, He is praising intercessors in all three cases. And He's praising those intercessors in the context of a city for which no intercession will ever be enough. Because Jerusalem is slated for destruction and it doesn't matter if Noah, Daniel, and Job, all three were simultaneously in the city praying for Jerusalem. They couldn't save Jerusalem. They could only save themselves. So in Ezekiel 14, it is a, uh, boy, it's something else. Ezekiel's even given a tour. There's an angel that comes and grabs him by the hair and yanks him up. And he uh, kind of leaves his body at that point, And he goes on a spiritual journey through time and space. He, he gets to move forward and he sees the, the, trip, the uh, millennial temple. And he gets to go to Jerusalem and see the current temple. God even takes him into another man's soul drills a little hole through the wall and he gets to pass through there and he will see the inside of a man's soul. How wild is that? Of all the journeys to get to go see, only God can look upon the heart. But on this occasion, he invited Ezekiel to come inside another man's heart to see the ugliness that was there. Because that man was very religious and externally he looked righteous, he looked great. And God said, oh no, look at his heart. And got inside there and saw all the demons and the idols and all the things. Anyway, these are the kind of journeys that uh, Ezekiel gets, gets taken on. And um, so this chapter begins with a rebuke against Jerusalem, against the Jewish people for their idolatry. And the false prophets that tell them that everything's cool, everything's okay, they're doing great. And uh, God says, no, they are slated for destruction. So the paragraph now in Ezekiel 14, 12, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, sends famine against it and cut off from it both man and beast. So that's a country in darkness. We might say, wow, that sounds like America. <laughs> All right. Here's a land under divine judgment. And so the believers in that land better get serious about intercessory prayer. We better be under Bible teaching. We better be dedicated to daily prayer, praying for our president, praying for our Congress, praying for our governor. That's our blessing as intercessors. But if it gets as bad as Jerusalem is here, none of that prayer is going to matter. 
That's scary. And so the even though statement in verse 14 is quite telling. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. In other words, God would send an angel, he would send messengers, he would get them out of there, like he got Lot out of Sodom. He can go and get these righteous men out of Jerusalem, in this case, as the case may be. So in our prayers, we're praying for our country, and we're praying for uh, repentance, we're praying for revival. We would love to see our country on fire for the Word of God. But if not, if our nation is slated for destruction, remember, God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. He knows how to rescue the godly. And if it's time for us to depart, to get on the Mayflower and go, I don't know where the Mayflower might be, and I don't know where we might go. Where is there a pivot? Where is there a client nation in our world today? Where is there a place of refuge? And maybe, maybe it's Kiev, Ukraine. Maybe it's the Ukrainians we've been training all this time. Or maybe it's South Korea. For the first time ever, South Korea is sending out more missionaries per capita It's the first time our nation has been out-missionaried ever in our nation's history. Not in raw numbers, not in absolute numbers. We still send out more worldwide in raw numbers. But per capita, as a percentage of population, the South Koreans are actually sending out more than we are. Evangelicals with a grace gospel. How about that? So that's verse 14 of Ezekiel 14. And he repeats himself. A bunch more times. Verse 16, verse 18, verse 20. Why is he so repetitive? So verse 15. Because in each one of these stages, there's an intensification. So in verse 15, it says, If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts. And that represents, I think, an intensification of the judgment from verse 13. And now it's getting worse in verse 15. And sometimes I start to wonder, are all these wild beasts, are they zoological beasts? Or are, they, are some of them anthropological beasts? Have our cities been given over to street thugs and beasts and so forth? Because the Bible sometimes uses that language to talk about humanity. Though these three men, verse 16 repeats the, the uh, testimony, Though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver their sons or their daughters. Now, Noah did. Noah delivered his sons and their wives. He put them on the ark. And the testimony is it was his righteousness, not theirs. This shows you how bad it is in the fall of Jerusalem here in 586 B.C. They could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Verse 17, or if I should bring a sword on the country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in the midst as I live, declares the Lord God. Notice he's taking this vow, as I live. The God who cannot die is staking his I am eternal life status on this vow that he's taking. He cannot lie, he cannot die, but he's taking this vow, as I live. 
They could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Verse 19, or if I should send a plague, and you say, okay, I get it already, I get it. You've made your point now. This is your fourth time to make the point. That's right. Again and again and again. For 120 years, Noah kept preaching repentance and no one listened again and again and again. How many times can you say there's a flood coming? Again and again and again. Now for the fourth time, if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I live. Think about their intercessory ministry. Daniel interceded for his whole nation. So we have Daniel chapter 9 in our Bibles. He interceded for his nation. And of course, uh, Job had to become an intercessor for those that persecuted him, for his three critics. He had to be an intercessor for them at the end. All three of these are intercessors. As I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Think about the privilege we have to become intercessors. We get to be imitators of Christ. You know, when he was hanging on the cross, you know what he was doing? Interceding. They were mocking him. They were hurling all kinds of abuse at him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can you imagine? I, it boggles my mind. I, that's not my personality. I, I, my humanity to hang there and, and receive all that when I'm the creator of the universe and I could send them all to the moon or blast them or whatever I want to do to them. But he prays for them. He intercedes for them. And then the darkness falls and he accepts their sins. And he accepts my sins because I'm no better than them. None of us are. Our iniquities are laid on him and he accepts accepts it all as an intercessor qualified to be our justifier. So we want to be Christ-like. We want to be intercessors for our families, certainly, for our church family, for our state, for our nation. This is, uh, this is a benefit. We have the privilege of being able to do this. Now the days of Noah were preached by Isaiah, Jesus, and Peter. And the days of Noah, as they get preached, get abused. And they get, um, they get twisted in some respects. This is where I think dispensationalists do the best and where I think covenant theology does the worst, where I think replacement theology is evil and uh, preterists are completely off track because they, to them, the days of Noah is meaningless at this point. They're not looking for the future tribulation. They're not looking for the future, any of that. They, they tell you the book of Revelation is over and done with, fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem. They teach you that there is no rapture. They teach that they remove the blessed hope from their theology. And it's sad. Isaiah is probably the least known of these. Isaiah 54, 9. And um, right away you're thinking, Isaiah 54? Really? (laughs) Because... 52 and 53 and 54. This is a marvelous section of prophetic 
joy, of blessings for the Jewish people. That there's a servant on the way. He's going to suffer, but he's going to save. And uh, looking forward to the millennial kingdom, shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, declares the Lord. They've come through tribulation and oh, is there a blessing that's going to multiply beyond anything they could ask or think. And in a miraculous fashion whereby typical human weaknesses are all going to be overcome in God's grace and in God's glory. And so, as you look through uh, these early verses here, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. You're going to get a bigger tent, (laughs) okay? All good news. The kingdom is going to be glorious. All the blessings are going to be piled on top of each other. You will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. They have to go through tribulation to get there, but when God gets them there, man, is this going to be a glory. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Tribulation is literally hell on earth. And when he brings the Jewish people into their kingdom, Uh, those memories, those fears, those concerns, they're all wiped away because it's a never again in God's book for the Jewish people after the tribulation. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. That's amazing because they were the faithless harlot. Israel, are you kidding me? They were faithless before Yahweh. They played the harlot with every false god out there in the Old Testament. He issued them a certificate of divorce and sent them away into captivity. But he brings them back. He brings them back. He restores them. He remarries them. Yahweh to Israel. And the promise is here. For Yahweh has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And so all of that imagery from the Old Testament, from the book of Jeremiah, from Isaiah, from from, um, Hosea. Hosea had to marry a harlot. He had to take her back after she returned to her harlotry business. Hosea had to be the prophet that laid out what Yahweh was experiencing with Israel's faithlessness. And all of this is fulfilled with Israel through the tribulation when he brings them into the millennial kingdom and Yahweh remarries his faithless bride. Now, verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me. Aha. So we have significant doctrine connected to the days of Noah, or referencing the days of Noah, but looking forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ, looking forward to the millennial kingdom, looking forward to the time, universal time of blessing for Israel. This is like the days of Noah to me, 
when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. So this is a days of Noah comparison. I'm reading from Isaiah 54 and verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. But the parallel that he's making is not the eating and the drinking and the marrying and the giving in marriage and all the the things that preceded the judgment. He's talking about the covenant after the flood. He's talking about the rainbow. He's talking about bringing Noah off the ark and giving the rainbow promise and saying, I will never again flood the earth as I have done. That's the rainbow promise. That's not the, the perversion we see today, all right? And so Yahweh says, like the days of Noah, when I gave the rainbow promise, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, he gives a new rainbow promise, as it were. Probably won't be a rainbow, but he gives a new promise to the Jewish people when he brings them in and when he sets them up as the kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of heaven on earth. Never again. I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The millennial kingdom is a time for Jewish blessing unlike any they ever had in the Old Testament. And at the end of that thousand years, when the nations are gathered around in rebellion, when the Gentiles have got them surrounded and demand the release of Satan and they're marching in what's called a Gog-Magog rebellion, Revelation chapter 20, when Jerusalem is surrounded, it's Israel that stays faithful. It's Israel that stays faithful realizing this promise that he's making with them after the tribulation. And so, um, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones All your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. These are the things they have to look forward to. What a joy. And to ignore all that, to dismiss all that, to remove all that and replace it with the church is wicked. These are promises for the Jewish people. This is their kingdom. God is not a liar. He will not lie to David. David's son will sit on David's throne forever. This is a part of what they have to look forward to in the days of Noah is a promise to the Jewish people in that connection. Jesus also preached about the days of Noah. Matthew 24, it's parallel to Luke 17, so we don't have to read them both. Let's just read Matthew 24. Jesus is preaching. This is called the Olivet Discourse. They were on the top of Mount Olivet as he delivered it. You'll notice that in uh, 24.3, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. They had just left the temple. The disciples were all impressed with the temple. Herod had spent 43 years remodeling the thing, and it was huge and glorious. 
and they were impressed. And Jesus looked at it and said, it's getting torn down. (laughs) You know, you're really going to be impressed when you see the millennial kingdom. How about that? And so they've got questions. Well, when will these things be? When will these, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? By the way, that's the sign of the second advent. It's not the sign of the tribulation, of the rapture of the church. The church is still a mystery. The rapture is a mystery. They don't have a clue to even ask about the rapture. They're asking about his coming at second advent. And so he's going to tell them here, these are the signs of the second advent. The rapture has no signs, but the second advent has lots of signs. Some pretty inescapable signs like, oh, the sun, moon, and stars going dark. That's pretty clear. (laughs) All right. So verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, do we have to go through tribulation? Well, Israel does, church doesn't. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give up its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's pretty rough. And that hadn't happened yet, obviously. But with the sun burned out, with the moon burned out, with the stars burned out, with all of the uh, fallen angels trembling and their paramount uh, wavering, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. I think it's like wiping the Etch-a-Sketch clear, right? Remember what an Etch-a-Sketch used to be? Wiping your screen clear, it's like doing that, making it all go blank so that now you can draw and one star, just one, one star appears in the sky. Would that get your attention? Yeah. Remember the Magi? They were guided by a star. Here's a star. And it gets closer and closer and closer. (laughs) And the brighter it's getting, Armageddon's approaching. Oh, the armies of Antichrist and Satan, everything is, it's, uh, it's panic city at that point. So they gather together in the valley of Megiddo in the valley of Har Megiddo and the whole goal is to prevent him from landing to prevent the second advent good luck with that okay but what else are you going to do all right so we got the days of Noah and the sign appears further down we have a parable of a fig tree so there's a warning and then um when you see these things. And then we have the days of Noah. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now Jesus uses the same words, the days of Noah, that Isaiah used. But Isaiah was talking about the rainbow promise, the covenant after the flood. Jesus now was talking about the disregard of the warnings ahead of the flood. The disregard of the warnings. And he says... The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, notice, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. All the fun and games ended on that day. For 120 years, Noah was preaching repentance and nobody listened because they were carrying on. They were having daily family life. They were having a secular life. They were just conducting business and marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. Life is fun, right? Life is short. Play hard. I mean, these guys probably invented the first Nike commercials and all the, all the slogans 
that we have today in our tennis shoes. Life is short, play hard. Yeah, play hard because it ends tomorrow. It ends. The preacher of righteousness has given you a deadline and you had 120 years. That's long enough. That's, that spans the at least two generations in those days. All right. And I think that's why it was that long. He gave the younger generation time to reach account- the age of accountability from the time he first started preaching. Anyway. Youth will die at 100, all that. A 100-year age of accountability and uh, 120 years of, uh, of grace. The day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. This is not a rapture of deliverance. This is an anti-rapture. They were swept away by the flood. The flood water swept them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And people that try to turn this backwards and upside down, they have to pervert this to try to make it a rapture text. It's not a rapture text. In the rapture, it's the believers that are snatched up to take to heaven, and the unbelievers are left here to face Antichrist and tribulation and and global judgment. At the second advent, it's the other way around. The unbelievers are killed. They're bound up. They're thrown into the fire when the, when the wheat and the tares are separated. And so here, the, the, the imagery of the ark is that Noah and his family were closed up in the ark. They were taken by God and put out of sight. Kind of like us at the rapture. We're taken by God and we're taken out of sight. We're snatched up to go to heaven and no one's going to see us anymore. They'll be looking around saying, where's Pastor Bob? Where's Austin Bible Church? Where's all those believers we used to know? We're out of here. And we're out of sight, like Noah and his family were out of sight inside the ark. We're out of sight, and boy, then judgment comes. And those that weren't preserved are doomed. So then when you read about this, one will be taken, one will be left. Two men in the field, two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. This is not the rapture. This is judgment as unbelievers are removed and sent to hell. So Noah preached it. I'm I'm sorry, Isaiah preached the days of Noah. Jesus preached the days of Noah. Peter preached the days of Noah. 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5. Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter. Days of Noah. Boy, this is a deep text. I'll just show you where it is and refer you to the website if you want more on this. But um, Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust. That's verse 18. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is Jesus and his victory at the cross. And we can have this when we believe in Christ to be made alive in the Spirit. Notice, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So here's a days of Noah message and Peter is preaching it. 
during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Eight persons were saved. Noah spent 120 years preaching and the only ones saved were his wife and his three sons and their wives. But these disobedient spirits, these are the uh, the Nephilim that we'll get into when we get to Genesis chapter 6. And uh, the preaching that Jesus did, the victorious proclamation he made during the three days he was in the grave. This is between the cross and the resurrection. Jesus descended and preached while he was waiting for his body to be resurrected. There's a days of Noah message there. That's powerful. How about 2 Peter 2.5? And it's a warning. There's false prophets out there. There's false teachers out there. Got to be on your guard. Churches need to be on their guard. And so um, false prophets also arose among the people. This is verse 1. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. Some of these prosperity preachers, some of these, and and they have crowds. They get crowds to follow because the, the sensuality, which doesn't have to be sexual, it could be any kind of sensual, pleasing to the senses. It looks good, it sounds good, it smells good. And uh, the music and the flash and the glitz and all of the, the sensuality, it's pleasing. And just the, ooh, the thrill. You, know, you just walk out feeling, feeling holy. There's no truth in any of it. And there's no foundation to stand you steady in the time of testing. So because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. See, God sees it and He's preparing it. Our nation is going to reap the whirlwind. I know it because we've been sowing the wind. Now, is He delaying? Is He giving us a remnant? Is He giving us a, a deferment of that judgment? I pray so. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, those are the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Again, this seems like Noah, his righteousness, and seven others. (laughs) Kind of makes me wonder. All right. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, that gets to another issue. But he rescued righteous Lot. He got Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He even got his wife out of there for a time. He rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Understand this. The verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So these days of Noah, they're useful. We can learn from them. Israel can learn from them. We can learn from them. And we should learn from them. Now the book of Hebrews references Noah's faith as a blessing to his family. 
and as the condemnation of the world. I would put forth the same thing for us today. When you're walking in faith, you're blessing your wife, you're blessing your children, you're blessing your family, you're also condemning the world because you're leaving them without excuse. It's a testimony of righteousness by grace through faith and it's a testimony of what they don't have. The same thing, um, it's a sign of deliverance for you, salvation for you, and a sign of destruction for them. We saw that in Philippians chapter 1, if you recall. So walk by faith. First of all, without faith it's impossible to please God, but then secondly, it's a blessing to you and your family, and it's a condemnation of this world. All right, so that's our third example there. Next week we'll come back and we'll introduce Abraham and Sarah. And I promise we're not going to take one hour per verse. That would make Hebrews chapter 11 40 weeks long. Um, Someday that'd be a fun study to do, but not this time. All right, this time we'll we'll try to get through chapter chapter 11 in about 10 lessons. We've already been here three or four, so we'll see how the rest of the chapter goes. But it's all about faith. And example after example after example is how believers walked by faith and pleased God. How believers walked by faith and obtained the testimony that they walked by faith. And I hope we can learn these lessons ourselves. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the walk of faith. I thank you that as we approach you, you become the rewarder. And Father, all of these principles... um, in the Old Testament, the saints, they had this walk and, and they had just a fraction of what we have. Noah didn't have a Bible, but he had your, your spoken promises and he believed you for what you said. I pray that we learn these examples, we learn these lessons. I pray that each one of us walks by faith. I pray that nobody at Austin Bible Church is content simply to be saved, waiting around to go to heaven when we die. I pray that we are motivated to walk by faith, to be saved ones presently functioning in faith, presently pleasing you, presently glorifying your son. He is so worthy, far more worthy of us just sitting around waiting to die. We should be serving you day by day. And I pray these chapters light a fire in each one of us. Father, I do pray for anyone sitting here this morning that does not understand the gospel, that is still trying to work their way into heaven. I pray today is the day they realize there's nothing they can do to deserve it. They can't work their way there. It's by grace through faith and nothing else. Father, thank you for being faithful. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.